that we are going to continue in our series that we've done, uh, that we've been working through. It's a study on the healthy church and what it looks like to be a healthy church. And, and we have said it over and over again. It's been a premise that we've really been building out of, that a healthy church really starts with the work of God in us, that, that, that His work starts us being a healthy church. It's not like we're healthy and then we tag on the piece about God. God is the source of health in us as Christians and thereby health as a church. And so we, we have to recognize that. And then there's a reality that our health is, is not just his work. It's primarily, it starts with him, it originates with him, but then is about our response to him. We can have all the work that God's doing in us and, and not be obedient. There's call after call after call after call. In fact, the passage we are dealing with today, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, is a call to action. It's a call to obedience. It's a call to live a certain way. And we hear that over and over and over, even in the New Testament, because we are apt and prone to not live obediently. So, so a healthy church is also marked by obedience and obedient response to the Father. Now last week, as we and, and, and let me just say this, we've been building out a foundation for this for weeks. We've been kind of laying the groundwork, we've been getting it all set, getting the foundation in place so that we can begin building on top of it. And that's what we've been doing. And last week we turned to this view of identity. So we established a gospel doctrine. We established a view of what God has done in us and, and, and is, is actually doing for us and doing to us. We've seen that work and what he's saying about us, what, what he's calling us, how he's renaming us and reshaping us and changing our nature. We've, we've been seeing that, and then we turn to this new identity, this view of, of who we are. Because it isn't just about the external work that God does. It's not just about Jesus dying on a cross. Certainly it is. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying it's not. It certainly is about Jesus dying on a cross. But if he died on a cross, but it had no application for your life, then it would be a story that would leave us hopeless and empty. But that is not the gospel. It would be like God being extremely good, as we just sang, but never letting us experience his goodness. You see, it'd be like God being perfect and holy and righteous and gracious and merciful and us not getting to enjoy any of it. But that's not what he's done, right? That's not how he's, that's not, that's not the gospel. And that's not what he's doing in us. You see, it's not just about what he's doing outside of us. It's about what he's doing in us and how he's changing us from the inside out. He has given us a new nature. He has given us a new identity. We are not who we were before we knew him. Before Christ, even in this letter, before Christ, we were, we were seen to be slaves to sin. We were without hope, without inheritance, without anything to look forward to. And we were by nature unholy. But through Christ, because of Jesus, because of the work of God through Christ in us, changing us from the inside out, we are now his children. We have been adopted into his family. We belong to his family. We, we have uh, uh, the inheritance, the eternal and certain inheritance that he's given us through Jesus, eternal life. We, we have the hope of, uh, and the promise of, of his powerful protection keeping us to the day that he comes back. We've been freed from our sin and freed to live under his authority. 
We, we, we are no longer unholy, but we have been made holy. You see, it's a whole new identity. It's a whole, it's a whole new nature. It's a whole new sense of, of being. And we have to get this identity piece right. If, if we don't get the identity piece right, if we don't figure this, out, this part out first, and we just start doing, we just start acting, and we're going we're gonna to get things all out of whack. We're going to get a cart before a horse. And, and I don't know if you've ever had a cart before a horse, but that doesn't work. The cart's got to follow the horse. It's got to go in the right order. It's going to be like building a building and not laying the foundation first. It's like putting up the walls and then trying to put the foundation on top of it. That doesn't work. You see, we've seen it. We've seen it. We've seen God's plan. We know that before, before the first ounce of concrete was ever laid, before the first moment or the first part of the footing was ever dug, God had plans. He had set a plan in place. He had set a plan in motion. He had drawn out the blueprints of, of what it was to going to be to be a healthy Christian and thereby be healthy churches. He, he had it planned out. And then he began digging. And he, and he began pulling out the dirt and, then so that he could, and, and doing the groundwork so that he could lay the concrete in on top of it and it would be solid and it would be firm and a storm wouldn't shake it. He began to do that work. But he's not just doing the work. He's the one that's decided what the building is going to be. He's decided the purpose that the building exists for. You see, in terms of identity, he's determined who you are. He's the one who says who you are. That's what he's doing. We have to get this right. We have to get this in the right, right order. Otherwise, we're just like everyone else in our culture. We're just like everything else happening around us. We're building our identity. We're building the things we do. Let me say it like this. We're doing the things we do so that we can be who we want to be. That's backwards. Most of our lives, I think, most of our lives, this is an opinion. I don't have any statistics that I can point you to or scientific studies. This is just an opinion and just personal experience as, as I talk to people. And I get to talk to a lot of people, so you can trust me here. <laughs> but, but I think much, much of our lives is, is, is built building our identity out of the roles that we fill. I'm not saying it's the only way we build our identity. I, I just think it's a prominent one in our culture. For example, I mean, how do you identify yourself when you introduce yourself to people you don't know? I'm a father. I'm a mother. Well, I'm not a mother, but maybe you are. I'm a brother or a sister. I'm, we identify ourselves by our roles in our family, don't we? I'm my job. I used to be an aircraft mechanic, and I was proud to tell people, hey, my name's Seth Shelton. I'm an aircraft mechanic. It's funny now that now I'm a pastor and it's a little harder to say because I know people are going to act completely different once I say those words. How do you identify yourself? Maybe, maybe it's not the role you have in your work. Maybe it's not whether you're a boss or an employee. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not just by your role in your family, mother, brother, or, or mother, father, sister, brother. Maybe it's by your pleasure. I'm a sports fan. I'm, I'm, I'm really not. Maybe you are. 
I'm an outdoors person. I'm a, I'm a foodie. That's a new one, right? I mean, that's just recent. I'm a foodie. I don't really, I, I like food, but I don't know that I'd say I'm a foodie, but maybe you would. You see, and we begin to define ourselves by what we do, but that's backwards according to the biblical picture we've been given. It's the biblical picture that Peter's drawing for us says that who you are should define then what you do. And that's why last week when we came to this passage that gives our very first command in this letter that Peter wrote, that is why we didn't just jump in and start talking about the how-tos. If we had done that, it would have been very easy just to tag that to the list of to-dos that we have that aren't getting done. That's not healthy. Instead, I, I think I think it's important we see this. He made us who we are and thereby defined what we are to do. So let's read our passage. Let's talk about this. Let's think through this again. And we'll, as we go through it, we will define and we will set us, remind ourselves of those identifying features that, that are called out. But then this week, rather than answering the question, why do we strive for holiness? We're going to answer the question, how do we strive for holiness? Well, let's just read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. It says, therefore, therefore, remember, this is in light of all I've been telling you. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in god who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in god you see this this, this passage this, these these verses at their at their heart, at their core, are a call to holiness. A call to be what you've been made to be, to, to act in accordance with your new nature. He is calling us to be holy because we've been made holy. Now, if you remember, to be holy, it's to, to define that. Holy means to be set apart, to be to be distinct, to be made different, to be made pure. It's when something has been chosen out of, cut off from the group or from the whole and being brought over and being made distinct to be made set apart from the rest of the whole. Now, I've been illustrating this to you with my Bible. This is my Bible. It is holy unto me. Now, it's God's holy word that's been set apart to him, but this particular one, this physical existence of God's word is mine. It's holy unto me. It's set apart for my use, for my purposes, for my desires, for my longings. And I've told you over and over, come and take it. I dare you. And I've, I've, I've said, hey, come on, try it. 
Nobody's taken me up on it yet because they know I'll punch them. <laughs> That's the truth. No, it's not really the truth. If you're stealing my Bible, you probably need it more than I do. But this is holy unto me. That's the idea. God has made you holy. He has set you apart. He has looked at you in the world and said, you are mine. You are holy unto me. You belong to me. And just in a quick review, just by way of quick review, this is the first reason why. This is the very first reason why we strive for holiness. Because we have been made holy. We have been set apart by God unto unto God. He chose you, set you apart for His purpose, by His design, and to fulfill His own desire. He made you like Himself. He is holy, so you too are to be holy. There's a difficulty here, though. I'm a little different than a Bible. Right? I mean, I make the Bible holy unto me. It's just going to kind of it's just going to be there. That's not like us, so is it? I mean, the Bible is in many ways, it's just an inanimate object. It's, it's going to do exactly what I tell it to do. It's going to sit where I place it. It's going to open to the page I turn it to. But we don't do that, do we? In fact, the reason over and over and over in Scripture the reason that we are told over and over and over and called over and over and over to obedience is because even as a holy people, we don't always live like holy people. So what does that mean? What does it mean to live holy? To live a holy life is to live in a godly manner, directing our entire being to action that reveals God's image in us. He has made you like Himself. He has made you holy. You might say that to live a holy life is to live in such a way that God's fingerprints are made evident on your mind and on your body and on your soul so that the handling of God is made evident in the way that you act so that people can tell and see the distinction that God has made in you. That's what it is, to live like Him, to live in such a way that it, it honors Him and it, it brings Him reverence and, and, and it demonstrates to others that you are distinct by Him. Letting all that He's done in you shine through you. Why do we do this? Because we are holy. And you see that. It, I mean, it says it in verse 14. Because you've been holy, active. In all your conduct, be holy. The, the second reason we saw last week that, that, that we do this, the reason why we strive to live holy lives is because we are adopted. In verse 14 and verse 17, verse 14 refers to us as children. Verse 17 refers to us, uh, uh, or refers to God as our Father. He's the one that said this. This, this isn't our invention. It, it's not us who came up with, with this identity. You know, I think God reminds me of a dad. So I'm going to call him father. He self-identified this way. You see, this is, just, this is important. He didn't do this, to, he, or we didn't do this to him. He did this for us. 
He says, I'm your Father. I gave you a spirit that cries, Abba, Father, you are my children. And this is our primary role in the kingdom. You see, he's given us a new nature, a holy nature. He's given us a new role. We are not just citizens in the kingdom. We are children of the king. And the third reason we saw why was that we are ransomed. We have been bought at a price. Not silver or gold. It's, you're too valuable. The price is too high. The cost is too, too big. You have been ransomed at a price. The precious blood of Christ. The only natural Son of God gave His life for you. That you might be adopted. That you might be bought out of slavery. We studied all of that last week in depth. You're welcome to go back and listen to it. But those are the reasons why we live holy because we are made holy by God. We have been given a new nature. We are a different person. All right. So that begs the question then, how do we do it? I mean, you've given me, I've tried to give you plenty of foundation to stand on, but now how do I do it? What do I do tomorrow when I get out of bed? What what do I do when when, when my world just falls apart, when, when I am out of control and I don't have another thing to turn to? When, when I have every reason to celebrate, when everything is going my way, how do I do this? How do I live holy? That's the question. And just as we have three reasons why we live holy, I think we have three reasons presented here how we live holy. The first, Christians strive to be holy by directing their entire being to trust Jesus fully. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, because I have said all I have said, because God has done all He has done, Peter says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully, not partially, fully, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is really just another way of telling us to, to believe completely in Jesus He gives us some steps here. He gives us a a, a couple of things for us to look at. He says, preparing your minds for action. Now, the translators were nice to you. They they gave you a thought-for-thought idea here instead of giving you a a more literal translation. The the reality is probably if we were reading a literal translation, most of us, because we wear jeans and pants, wouldn't get it. The literal translation would say, gird up your loins, or gird up the loins of your mind for action. And we'd be like, what? That sounds kind of creepy. Right? He's talking about loins up there. Some of you are thinking about the pork loin that you're going to have for lunch. But that's not what he's referring to. What he's referring to is the dress of of the people of the day. They they all wore robes, long robes. Have you ever worked in a robe? I haven't because I don't wear dresses. But maybe you have. And you know that it's not always convenient. It's not always, you're, you're not always just ready to run a race. And you're not always ready to just go dig in the garden. See, when, when they would do work or when they would have to run or when they needed to be ready to fight, they would gird up the loins of their clothes. And what they would do is they'd take their clothes and they'd wrap them up and they'd tie them in their belt so that their, their dress or their gowns, their robes, I guess is a better way to say it, just for the men especially, that, they would be more like leggings. 
And they would be free to move. They would be able to take part without the stuff flying up around their head and getting in their way. And he's saying, you, you do this with your mind. All the stuff that could hinder you, all the stuff that could get in your way, all the stuff that could cause you to to think of other things, get rid of them, gird them up, secure them. Do something with your mind. Now, this is completely opposite of what our culture would say because so much of our culture thinks that if you are going to believe the gospel, if you are going to trust Jesus, you must check your intellect at the door. Peter is saying, no, in fact, you desperately need your mind. It starts in your mind. You need to prepare it for action. That means quit filling it with the junk in the world and getting all that loose stuff in the way. Quit filling it with all the stuff that that causes us to be unready and unprepared. Prepare your mind for action. And then he says, being sober-minded. Now the word is really be sober, right? So don't be drunk. But in context, we know that he's not just saying and not just making an argument against drunkenness, although I think he is, but he's not just saying drunkenness. I think he's talking and calling us to exercise self-control. He's, he's calling us to, to do something. You see, we take our minds and we, and we take hold of our thoughts and we take every thought captive and we set aside those things that would delay us or, or hinder us or, or, or cause us to look away. And then we exercise self-control. We begin to exercise our intellect that it changes our will. You see, this is not just your average everyday, I'm going to come to church and sit for a while and let somebody shout at me. This is me taking everything I am in my mind and directing it to think and act in a way that it honors God. This is a whole body, whole soul, whole mind, whole heart workout. I mean, this isn't just the 20 minutes on the treadmill. This is everything about you being directed in such a way that you begin to demonstrate your full faith in Christ. You see, he's saying don't overindulge in anything. Don't, don't, don't let anything rule over you or control you that you might keep your mind prepared so that you might set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. Now specifically, he's calling us to faith in the future. So I, I hope as a believer in Christ, you believe for Jesus right now. But I hope you believe in him for the future. Also, the truth is, is that your present is, is just instance, right? I mean, your present ends as soon as you think about your present. We could broaden that out. Okay, I feel pretty good about the next 10 minutes. I'm, I'm pretty secure in the next 10 minutes. Well, what happens when you climb in your car and you drive away? What are you hoping in? What happens when you wake up and you go to work tomorrow morning? What are you, what are you hoping in? He's saying, trust Jesus for your future. I want you to remember, these, these people are suffering. Their circumstances are difficult. They are, they, they are being per- persecuted and they are suffering because they are believers in and followers of Jesus Christ because their life actually demonstrates to the world around them that they are followers of and, and believers in Jesus. And, and the world doesn't like it and they begin to oppress and they begin to push away and they begin to make fun of and ridicule. They lose their positions. In society, they lose family members, they lose, they lose loved ones, and they are cut off. 
Because the world won't have them. Peter called them exiles. But while they are exiles of the world, they are holy unto God. He says, now, now place your hope fully in Christ Jesus. Trust Him in the midst of the circumstance you live in and trust Him for the future that looms ahead of you. So first, study Jesus. Get your minds ready for action. Set aside those things that hinder us. Second, don't overindulge. Don't get drunk on the world. And third, trust Jesus completely. How do we know if we're even doing that? How do we, how, how do we know if we're doing that? Well, let's just ask a couple of questions. Let's just do a little test. Think about the difficulties we face in our world right now. In, in, in our nation in particular. Let's just think about the difficulties we face as the United States of America. What's your first answer for the hope of America? I know, sitting in this room, you're probably going to say, Jesus, because that's what we do when we're in Sunday school. Jesus, that's the right answer. But what would your Facebook feed tell me about what you believe our first hope for this country is? Would your Facebook feed tell me that you believe that if we get Obama out of president, our, 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 out of the White House, that our problems will be solved? Well, maybe it's not a Republican issue. Maybe it's a Democrat issue. Man, what we really need is to get rid of the Republican Congress and Senate and get Democrats back in control. You see, if you place more hope in the Republicans or the Democrats or a liberal or conser- conservative or liberal view, then your hope is not fully in Jesus Christ. If you have a greater hope for the for the for the people in our government to solve our problems than a proclamation of the gospel that changes people's hearts, that thereby changes the systems that we live in, and thereby exalts Jesus above all other things, then you are missing the point. Your government is not your hope. It might be an authority that God has placed over you, but Jesus is your hope. And your, your, your votes... Your perspectives should be drawn out of that, but your hope should not be placed in them. How how, how about your time and your energy and your money, the resources that you've been blessed with? I mean, if we were to just do, if if we were just do a quick check, are you making sure that you just get that tithe set aside? You know, just setting aside just enough that God is pleased and and that you're feeling okay, and your conscience is soothed. But the vast majority of your time and your energy and your finances, the resources that he's blessed you with, are then turned and directed to build your own kingdom. You see, if you have enough energy and enough time and enough money to live a very comfortable life, and yet you don't serve your church family, and you don't mobilize the mission by giving to it, and you don't have any energy but for those things that make you feel good and comfortable, then your hope is not fully in Jesus Christ. The truth is, I'm going to risk this by saying, I don't think there's a person in this room, and I don't have to know you to know this, There's not a person in this room whose hope is fully in Jesus. But this is where Peter calls us to be. 
This is how he tells us to live. He doesn't set it up as an option. It's not even a a good recommendation. It is a command. Do this. You live holy by placing all of your trust, by placing all of your hope, which just is trust for the future. It's placing all of it in the grace that is to be revealed in the day of Jesus Christ. That's one way you do it. Christians strive to be holy by turning from sin to live obediently. You see in verse 14 and 15, he goes from that command to exercise your mind and your will and your heart and your faith. He goes from that in verse 13 to verses 14 and 15 as obedient children. You hear that? Obedient Obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, also be holy in all your conduct. He's calling us, in the first command, he's calling us to do something. In the the second command, he's calling us to quit doing something. You see that? One's a positive action, a positive step forward. The other is saying, don't do that anymore. He's saying, look, you were at one time, you were peasants. You were outside the gate. You were commoners. But now you are children of the King. He's educated you. He's shown you the truth. He's given you eyes to see, ears to see, hearts to believe, and minds to understand. Act with your new knowledge. He's not saying you were stupid. He's not saying those who don't know are stupid. He's not saying you're better or superior. He's not saying they're less. He's just saying he's shown you something new. He's given you new knowledge. He's given you new understanding. So exercise that. Direct it. To act like a a prince or a princess instead of a commoner. See, that's what he's saying. Don't act like you used to act. Don't don't do the things that you used to do. If your arguments start like this, well, God's Word says, but that's acting like you used to act. The the, the but and that that follows is acting like you used to act. God's Word says, so I comply, so I obey. You see, the reality is to, to live a holy life, is to line your desires up with the things that honor Him, the things that demonstrate His worth and His value, to, to live in obedience to the things that He says. And, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, I mean, not all your desires are bad. I, I think that, like Tim Keller says, that we just have inordinate desires. They're, they're desires that we, we get out of priority. It's, it's easy to identify the, the bad desires, right? I have, I have a desire to eat when I'm, when I'm upset. I, I don't know why I... I want to eat for comfort. Well, that's silly. That's a bad desire. But it's not a bad desire to eat. I mean, I need food to eat. But I get it out of whack. I get it out of priority. I, I have an inordinate desire sometimes for food. And so I, I, I recognize I need, to, I need to prepare my mind for action. I need to place my hope fully in Christ. I need to turn away from the, from the ignorant desires that I had before. See, a desire for family, it's a, it's a good desire. But in, but in ignorance, we place that desire for our family above even a desire for Christ. 
A desire for daily food is a good desire, but, but in ignorance, many, many of us eat for comfort. Or we live to eat rather than eat to live. A desire for money, it's not a bad desire. I mean, we need money to live. But many of us devote our lives to accumulating wealth. And we devote ourselves to building big bank accounts and building big kingdoms instead of allowing what he's blessed us with to flow through us, that it might bless others, that it might advance the kingdom, that it might send the proclamation of the gospel forward. The psalmist wrote, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The, the idea here is, is that if God is your delight, you will not miss out. Make him the first desire. Keep your other desires in priority. Keep them in check. List them out the way they need to be. He should be your first. And He will give you the desires of your heart. It's not a promise that you're going to get healthy, wealthy, and, 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 and have a bunch of stuff. That's not the promise. The promise is that when you desire Him first, you will be delighted by things and you will find satisfaction and joy and contentment in things that you don't even realize you will find contentment and joy in that you will be fully satisfied by Him. Delight yourself in Him. Be satisfied and content with Him. Be filled up by Him. And you can be certain that your desires will change, that your longings will change. You see, that these two pieces, these first two pieces, I think they go hand in hand. I, th I think one is the expression, a way for us to, to see our, our, our call to believe. Trust Jesus. And the second is a call to repent or turn from our sin. This is the Christian life. This is what we are called to. It's the way we enter into Christianity, and it's the way we walk in Christianity. Repenting of sin, believing in Jesus. Oh, that's sin. I've got to turn from it, and I've got to turn to Jesus. I desire that more than Jesus. I've got to turn from it and, and desire Jesus. I, I, I long for that too much. I need to turn from it and turn to Jesus. That is the life of the Christian. How do you do it? How do you live this way? Trusting fully in Jesus and turning from your sin. Every day. Every moment of every day. And then there's a third one. Christians strive to be holy by living fearfully. Christians strive to be holy by living fearfully. Now, I appreciated the question as I was studying and reading. I came across something John Piper had written, and, and, and I appreciate his perspective. He says that, isn't it strange that all that God has done, all that God has promised, all that God has made certain for us, then Peter comes to this place where he says, conduct yourself in fear, verse 17. Wouldn't you think that fear would decrease as the knowledge of God and the intimacy with God increases? It says in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Piper's question got me thinking. I prepare my mind for action. Look, I'm already helping you apply it, right? Prepare your mind for action. Think through these things. Deal with them. Look for the truth in them. And it really begins to make sense. I mean, who is more likely to have a healthy fear of a table saw? One who has observed it being used or one who's lost fingers to it. 
probably the person who's lost fingers to it. The, the person observing knows, well, that's dangerous. But the person that's lost a finger or, or thumb, they have an intimate knowledge of the power. Who's likely to be more afraid or fearful of what can happen in a crash? A 16, 17-year-old boy who thinks he's invincible? Or a young man who's been nearly killed because he made a stupid decision? I think it's evident. The power that we are, are controlling, the power that we have in, in our hands as we control a vehicle, it, it can do a lot of damage. It can kill people. There's reason to have a healthy fear of it. And the more we understand it, the more we've seen, the more we've experienced, the more intimate knowledge we have of it, the more we understand it. And you could tell me, oh, well, Seth, God would never hurt He would never hurt us. He, would, he wouldn't cause me pain. No, brothers and sisters, that is a misunderstanding of who God is and what He does. You see, God will trip you even if it means you land on your face to keep you from running off a cliff. And you and I need to be thankful for that. It's pictured all over the Scripture, all the way through from beginning to end. We see this exemplified, but one of my favorites is in Hebrews 12 because, again, God is Father. In fact, let me just read it to you. I'm running short of time, but, but this is too good. I, Hebrews 12 Beginning in verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now, endurance, it, it demonstrates this is tough. It's difficult. You don't have to endure the fun time. Like, who goes on vacation and sitting on the beach and has to endure? Right? That is not endurance. Endurance is in the midst of difficulty. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You better be thankful for the times that he trips you up and causes you to fall flat on your face so that you don't run off a cliff because it means you're his child. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness so that your nature mirrors his all the more. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. I think in the Greek that means for the moment, all discipline sucks. I think that's what it means. Rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now Peter, I think, refers to this idea of discipline, but he talks about it in the sense of judging. You call on the one who is Father. And he judges impartially. There is no favoritism according to your deeds. Even as one who has been made holy, let me just ask you this question. What have your deeds earned you? You see, if we're walking in just open 
and rampant sin, we should be scared to death. If we are toying with sin in any way, we should feel the fear of judgment. We should have fear of the discipline, just like a father, or I'm sorry, but just like a child fears his father's belt, we should have a healthy fear of the God who disciplines, who judges. But it's not just about quaking in our boots either. You see, he doesn't just tie it to the discipline. He doesn't just tie it to the judgment. He ties it to the to the to the price that's been paid for us. Let me let me go back over here. I didn't I, I didn't mark this down, but but he ties it to the, the the very next piece. In verse 18, you conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's the end of verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We conduct ourselves with fear in the sense that we revere. We stand in awe of the price that was paid for us. If we are willing to just stop and smell the roses in this world, and I I don't think they're really that good, but if we're tied up with the things of this world and we don't have time for Jesus, then that is not reverent fear for the price paid for you. That is not respectful of what he's done for you. You see, we should be fearing God and we should be revering our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he allowed allowed his blood to be poured out on our behalf. How do we live as Christians? How do we live holy since we've been made holy? Believe fully in Jesus. Hope for Him every second of your day. Recognize that He's the only answer, not just for your life, but every life. Hope in Him. Fully. Obey. Turn from your sin. Quit toying with the things of this world. Conduct yourself in fear. Fear God. Revere the price that he paid for you. Let's pray.